This episode is sponsored by Hire.com. Hire.com is offering a new freelancing and contracting offering. They have multiple companies that will provide you with contract opportunities. They cover all the tracking, reporting, and billing for you. They handle all the collections and pre-fund your paycheck. They offer legal and accounting and tax support. And they'll give you $2,000 when you've been on a contract for 90 days. But with this link, they'll double it to $4,000 instead. Go sign up at Hire.com slash Freelancer Show. This episode is sponsored by Nerd.us. Do you wish that somebody else would handle all of those operation details when it comes to hosting your client's web applications? Nerd.us is a Ruby on Rails managed hosting designed to make your life easy. They migrate everything for you, and new signups or referrals come with a $100 discount or a referral fee. To sign up, go to freelancershow.com slash nerd. That's freelancershow.com slash N-I-R-D, and enter freelancer into the contact form for a discount. If you're someone who runs your own service-based business, then spending less time on pesky admin tasks means having more time to focus on your client's work, which is why you need to give FreshBooks a try. FreshBooks is the invoicing solution that makes it incredibly simple to create and send invoices, track your time, and manage your expenses. It allows you to quickly see and track the status of your invoices, expenses, and projects, and allows you to keep track of your expense receipts in FreshBooks. For your free 30-day trial, go to freshbooks.com slash freelancers and enter the Freelancer Show in the How Did You Hear About Us section when signing up. This week's episode of the Freelancer Show is brought to you by Earth Class Mail. Earth Class Mail moves your stale mail into the cloud, giving you instant access 24-7 and integrates with the tools and services you use every day. It's crazy that we've moved everything we do for the business over to the digital world, but still need to pick up, sort, and manage physical mail. With Earth Class Mail, you can get all of your mail scanned and accessible online 24-7. You can search your mail, send invoices over to your accounting software, sync important documents into cloud storage, deposit checks, and really just make running your business a whole lot easier. You also get real professional address to share publicly with customers, business partners, and investors. And you'll never need to worry about someone showing up at your door if you run your business from home. Visit freelancershow.com slash mail and you'll get your first month of service free when you sign up. That's freelancershow.com slash mail. All right. Well, we are live. Hey, everybody who's watching. Um, I think it's just us, to be honest. Um, (laughs) So I failed to get the link sent out so people knew that we were doing this today. So that is totally on me. But uh, since we're here and we're going to do Q&A, so first we should uh, introduce our newest panelist, Philip Morgan. Hello, hello. So you've been on the show before, but do you want to kind of give a brief introduction to who you are? Yeah, I'd love to. Thanks, Chuck. So uh, I was on the show some months ago talking about positioning, and I'm anytime I appear on a podcast, it seems like that's what I'm talking about. I'm sort of a content marketer who was not finding a lot of success in my uh, efforts until I discovered positioning, and so now I'm a, a positioning evangelist, and I focus on helping development shops get more leads. So I use a number of techniques to help make that happen, and I am... Outside of that, um, a resident, a new resident of Northern California, as of about two years ago, a big fan of people who have the courage to go out and try to find their own clients and work for themselves. So I'm a big fan of uh, small solo freelancers, small shops, and super pleased to be here. Very cool. We are definitely excited to have you. I have to say, I read your book after we had you on the show. Probably should have read it before we had you on the show, but yeah. um, I absolutely loved it. And and honestly, I think it's something that everybody out there who is even considering going into freelancing should do. 
It's it's the book I wish someone had made me read uh, before I decided. Well, I didn't really decide to become self-employed. It just kind of happened. But uh, <laughs> yeah, it's the book I wish I had been forced to read before I uh, went out and made all those mistakes on my own. But th- thank you for the compliment and the feedback. It's good to know that it was helpful and relevant. Yeah, it's great. It's great. I, mean, I would say there, there are three sort of things that I really liked about it. Number one was just it was like good advice, right? <laughs> Which is always nice to have. Number two, you spend a lot of time saying to people, don't worry, this is a normal reaction, right? And it was almost, I, clearly you've talked to a lot of people about the whole positioning thing over the years, right? Like mm-hmm. where, where, or at least over the last year or however long it's been since you started thinking about this deeply. But right. clearly sort of the same objections came up again and again. And so it was almost, it was very weird. I was reading, I was like, wait, how did he know? How did he know? Because like, <laughs> for, for instance, uh, uh, you know, but if I narrow my focus, mm-hmm. won't that narrow my possibilities? And so, you know, I'm starting to think this, and of course the next page says, if I narrow my focus, won't it narrow my possibilities? Or, or, <laughs> uh, <laughs> and the third you part, know, which I must admit I did not use, which I thought was great, but other people should use, because right, they should do what I say, not what I do, is all those spreadsheets you offered for like yeah. going and ranking and, and putting together, really sort of trying to analyze how do you find your niche, how do you find what you want to do. I thought like it was well good ideas and well presented. So... Yeah. Thank you. You know, that part about the fear, it makes me think of going to the doctor and they take that little rubber hammer and, and hit your knee and then your leg just goes, whoop. it's a reflex, right? And it, it's almost like that. It's almost like a reflex. Like it works the same for everybody. It's primal. You know, it's hardwired into your nervous system somehow. That reflex of like, ah, uh, you know, if I start saying no, my business is going to shrivel up and die. <laughs> And I was given that explicit advice when I started off. When I started my business, like, I guess it was 20 years ago already. There was someone I met, and he said, oh, you want a business for yourself? Here's the best advice I can give you. Never turn down a client. <laughs> oh, really? And, That's like and the I, worst advice you could right, ever basically, give anybody. Right. <laughs> and years later, I'm thinking, I don't really I think that was very good advice at all. Um, now he's a lawyer, so maybe, uh, maybe like the the type of business he gets, people come to him, or I, I don't know what. But it definitely that advice did not serve me well for quite some time. Mm. I just I envision this guy with like a club, and he's like smacking it against his palm, right? Whack, whack. <laughs> you want to work for me? Whack. <laughs> I can't oh, say no. I need that business. <laughs> there are limits, even even to my naivete. Uh, I, I know, but I mean, basically, I've I've taken on clients where I knew that it was going to be this adversarial, abusive relationship, and it was like, well, I need the money, and uh, it was so not worth the money. You know, on that note, some months ago, put together a spreadsheet, a real simple spreadsheet that's got about maybe 12 things on it that was every time I'd have that experience that you're talking about where you're like, ah, that didn't go well. And if I look into my heart of hearts, I saw it coming. I just, Mm -hmm. I did it because I wanted the money or didn't have the courage to say no, or didn't have the faith that if I said no, something else would show up like all those things. Right. And I made a list of all those things where I should have said no, but I said yes. And then set it up where I'd just do a, a binary one or zero, and it was just basically a list of red flags. And for a while, I was calculating a score. So if you got a one, it meant this was a, not a red flag, and if you got a zero, it meant it was a red flag. Added up 
all the ones, and then you had to be over a certain score before I would allow myself to take you on as a client. <laughs> it was a way of kind of trying to train myself to not do that reflexive yes. Yes, of course I can do that for you. And I got to say it worked. It, I don't do it as rigorously anymore, but it did. It really helped me it's try to systematically think through the red flags because, you know, it's one thing in, in your head to say, this client has a couple red flags. But what I found was when I put it on, you know, quote unquote paper, uh, at least, you know, wrote it down on the screen, I had a much more critical response to those red flags. A much I took them a lot more seriously. Yeah, I mean, I, I wouldn't say everybody has to do that or anything like that, but it was a useful way to kind of train myself out of a bad habit. Yep. Yep. <laughs> Client qualification sheet. The checklist. <laughs> now, you actually do consulting now for technical firms, don't you? So do you still use that? or Sometimes, but I feel like it kind of installed some new instincts almost to, uh -huh. to do that for, say, six months. And so I, I do not do it as rigorously, but yeah, I'm definitely like, like some of the things from the list, just to give you a sense, are they really effective users of email as a communication channel or not? Do they just mysteriously go dark for no reason? You know, so things about communication, the kind of questions a client is asking to qualify me. I mean, they should ask some mm -hmm. questions, but there are certain questions that kind of indicate that, you know, that they don't trust me or there's a lot more trust building to do. So I, some of those things have become automatic. So to be honest, I don't use it as rigorously as I used to, but it, it really did serve me well for a period of time. Do you ever like kind of go, yeah, this doesn't smell right. And then, and then pull out the list. <laughs> like why, why does this feel wrong? Or do you um, just tell them no when it doesn't feel right? Yeah, I would just say, I mean, at this point, I almost have the list memorized. I think I could recite all of the, the 10 or 12 items on it. So it's more just of a mental checklist. Mm -hmm. Here's what, where it would be useful, again, is if I'm like, ugh, I know I should not take this client, but I want to take them anyway. If I get into that sort of internal uh, struggle, that's when I need to pull it out and document it for myself. I don't show this list to clients or potential clients. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that should be, should not go without saying um, I don't show it to them. I, I'm not like, well, here's where you guys fall short. Cause that just makes me look like a jerk. I can totally <laughs> see it. Philip saying you got an F. Bye. It would work with you, but um, yeah, <laughs> it's a numerical like, score. Yeah. <laughs> and, and the thing is also, I mean, what is a lot of it, I mean, even though you seem to be using, I guess what are, or, or at least what you've described are somewhat like objective qualifications, you know, as objective as are they effective users of email can be. But yes. for some uh, different people work well with different companies. And so it could well be that someone who's a terrible client for you would be a terrific client for someone else. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, there are also the people who are just terrible clients in general, but um, a lot of it, so much of it is chemistry. Yeah, I agree. That's a really that's a really good point, and uh, so I would have to be a real jerk to say you guys are a terrible client. I would just say yeah, we're not probably not going to be a good fit for this, and just leave it at that. Unless I was pressed for a reason why. Mm -hmm. Do you guys have any kind of formal client qualification criteria other than? I mean, I'm curious. I've been a, a long time listener of the show, but I can't remember if if you have anything quite so systematized. Well, for me, it generally is more about feel. I don't have a formalized way of managing that kind of thing. 
So generally it's, yeah, it's, do I want to work on this? Because I've taken some clients actually semi-recently that I wound up either handing off to somebody else or, you know, backing out before we got too far down the road. And basically what I was saying to him was, you know what, I just don't have time. And that was partially true. And part of it was, I am not going to work on this. I'm going to take this client and I'm not going to work on it because I don't want to. Yeah. Um, I was going to say, I mean, who, who used to be a panelist on the show, he was amazing at having this whole client qualification process where he had a certain time each week that he would spend on, like that was his interview slot. And so he would talk to them and he sent something, an email before that. So like you would email and say, I'm interested in working with you. He would say, well, now that you've expressed that interest, here's my survey. And then if you sort of got past the survey, then he would talk to you on the phone. And I was thinking for a while, wow, I should totally do that. Even though I, I didn't get such a, a huge, I don't, I didn't, don't have such a huge torrent of people calling me that I would see that as ne- necessary because I can just sort of feel it out. But then quite frankly, in the last year, I've really moved and focused so much on training which is a different kind of process. So first of all, it's much more a productized consulting sort of thing, where they'll call me and say, we need a course in X. And I say, oh, I've got that. What would you like to change in the syllabus? And then there's a little bit of a, a room. And also the fact that I'm now scheduled so far in advance gives me the luxury of basically, like, the only people who are really going to work with me are the ones who are willing to wait. So I mean, I just had a, a, like a company today email me and say, so are those dates in March and April of next year still good for you? And I was like, yeah, great, put it on the calendar. I mean, first of all, it's a fantastic feeling, but second of all, it means that they're almost qualifying themselves now because a lot of people just go to someone else and these guys, because I have a relationship with them or they don't have enough money nowadays, which I think is also possible, uh, that they're willing to put it on hold for a bit. So maybe one day I'll have a formal qualification process, but for now, I think it's just sort of almost obviated itself. Yeah, I can see how if they're willing to schedule pretty far in advance, that's going to rule out a lot of clients that might be more troublesome the last minute kind of yeah. rush job type things. Right. I, also, I, I, oh, oh, go, go ahead. ahead. I was going to say also on the subject, I just remembered a, an instance of a client where I, it may have not been a good fit, but then some things changed in my business, particularly in terms of how I work with clients. Cause I'm now sort of emulating a developer. And when I do consulting work, I, I tend to work a week at a time and kind of do like a, you know, week long sprint, you know, like agile style. And that change made me a lot more compatible with the client that I had initially passed on. So a year later, <laughs> we're working together. That's great. Yeah, I'm, I'm really curious, Philip, uh, kind of how your business works. I mean, we've, we've talked about ours. I think people have some idea of, of how we do things. But I'm curious, so is your main focus on helping technical firms position themselves is what I keep seeing whenever I see your name. And how do you bring people in? And, and what kinds of things are you doing with them when, when you have them? Yeah, cue uh, evil hand rubbing together. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so I I'm a, have been a pretty relentless experimenter myself. And so uh, even in the last year, there have been a lot of changes in how I do business. Let's say... 18 months ago, actually, I launched a service called My Content Sherpa, and that was like a productized content marketing service, which I've since wound down because I made a bunch of mistakes in how I did that service. Uh, I mean, I did some good work for people, but kind of the design of the service was suboptimal, and it was sort of pushing me towards being like a small virtual agency. 
So that's the first thing I, I would say in response to your question is I put my toe in that wat in the waters of the small virtual agency. I have a ton of respect for people who can pull that off because you just have to be kind of this master orchestrator of people and schedules and and, and I'm not that person. <laughs> so <laughs> I realized that pretty quickly and said, okay, I, I can do the one man band thing and that's really what I'm doing. So I will occasionally bring in subcontractors to help with a project, but Usually it's just me. The other sort of big strategic change is the positioning manual last December. Uh, I got a taste of something that was, uh, you know, tasted pretty good, which was product revenue. <laughs> so I am more and more trying to find new ways to develop product revenue for my business. And so strategically, I'm a one-man band. Part of my you know, business revenue comes from this weekly consulting I do with people. And it ranges, that ranges anywhere from I'll tell you what to do and you do it yourself to I'll do it for you. And so it, consulting is not always the right word for that, but let's just call it, you know, consulting or freelancing work. And um, I'd say that's anywhere between 50 and percent and two thirds of the total revenue. And then the other is product revenue which is a combination of book sales and a mentoring program that I've started, which is not pure product revenue. It takes some time to you know, participate in that, but it's a pretty nice return on the investment. It provides, I think, good value to people, but it also doesn't take a ton of my time. So in general, that's how I make money. <laughs> it's those uh, three things. And how I find people, honestly, has been largely through podcasting, podcast guesting, to be specific. Uh, I have a podcast that is kind of in between seasons right now called the Consulting Pipeline Podcast. And that honestly has brought my guests more business than it's brought me. (laughs) (laughs) But that's kind of like the power dynamic in podcasting, right? It's the guest who comes in and is the expert and is sharing their expertise. And the host is not really at the center. The host is working the spotlight back at the back of the stage and the guest is on stage. Anyway, that's brought my guests more business than me, but specifically appearing on podcasts is something that's probably added around five to 700 people to my email list. It's hard to say exactly because I haven't done things great. And that was an email list that started, you know, with nothing. (laughs) So over the past year, that's been the strategy that has been super effective for helping me kind of grow my own audience of people and leads and prospects and so forth. Every once in a while, I see somebody show up on my list. I mean, I don't see, I don't watch every subscriber notification, but someone shows up and then let's say within a month, I'm working for them. They've hired me to do Mm -hmm. consulting. That doesn't happen a lot. I can only point to two times that's happened, but I want more of that. (laughs) I want to make that happen more. And I think that's just a matter of uh, getting bigger numbers of list subscribers and doing a better job of showing them what I can do for them. I don't know if that was a great answer or not, but that, that's no, I, I, a good question. I have to assume also, Philip, at some point that, like, as you grow your list, and I, ha- I haven't really tried this because my list is still growing and I've just mm-hmm. played some games with it and where now it's growing even more, but I'm going to assume that if these people are following you and you're writing them on a regular basis or semi-regular basis, that even when you have a hole in your schedule, you're looking for new things, you can say, hey, is anyone interested in hiring me to do X? Although perhaps not as crassly as that. And... Like if you have a large enough audience, presumably it will happen because these people know you and trust you down those initial barriers. There's a couple interesting things about that, and I've actually done that. I did it on Twitter, and it was exactly that crass. I have a hole in my schedule. 
Do you need some content marketing asset or some lead generating asset? Mm-hmm. Let's talk. We'll build it. And I got some work out of that. <laughs> so it wow. was exactly that crass. So, so there you go. <laughs> but well, I've, like, I've done that on my podcast too. You know, yeah. I just get in and at the beginning, hey, I'm Chuck and I need some freelance work. And then I have people come to me and say, oh, I know who you are. And then they, yeah. I used to be so shy about doing that, you know, and then I realized, well, I mean, that's part of how you sell something is just say that it's available. Yep. And if what you're selling is your time or your ability to d- focus on a project, you should say that that thing is available. I think one of the things in general, I think, is we freelancers have a lot to learn from successful product businesses. We can't take everything they do and map it one-to-one to our businesses, but I think we have a lot we can learn. But I was going to say, Reuven, another part of that was the person who hired me, who saw the tweet on Twitter, I'm sure had seen me elsewhere or was also on my list. And having a list kind of creates a, an awareness. And I've gotten, and this has actually been confirmed by other people who have big lists. I've gotten, well, let's see trying to think if this has actually happened to me but or if somebody else. <laughs> but I've seen it happen with other people's lists where the person who is a member of your list, Reuven, might refer you to somebody else who's not on your list, and that person who's not on your list ends up hiring you. Mm-hmm. And so there is, even though that person on your list doesn't directly give you money, there's benefit to them being there. So naturally, right. as a, you know, kind of a content marketer, I'm a, I'm a big fan of people building a list from day zero of their business. So I'll tell you, like last week, I, I hired, a, I always forget the name, of Kurt Elster and uh, Kai Davis. They offered this thing on their mailing list. We will tear down your website and help you out. I was like, it's $200. It is so worth it to have these guys look at my book website and tell me why I'm not, why books are not flying, well, flying <laughs> off the shelves, as it were. So they did an amazing, amazing job tear down, and they're just great guys and very useful. And you know, toward the end, I said, listen, I have these sort of specific sublists for email courses. What do I do to get them on my main list? And they were like, oh, I mean, I'm using Drip. They're like, just automatically at the end of the email course, say, this is what I'm doing. If you mind, click here to unsubscribe. If you don't mind, you'll keep getting content. And I was thinking, oh my God, I'm going to get so yelled at for spamming and so forth. And maybe that will happen because I haven't yet put out another message to my list. It's going to happen the next day or two. But a bunch of people actually respond. I have this intro thing on my list. Please tell me about yourself. And I'm so overwhelmed with email now from people telling me about themselves. And it's an amazing feeling. But people, and several of them said, not just like, oh, you know, here's about me, but I'm so happy to have the opportunity to learn more from you. And it's a fantastic, fantastic feeling. And it means that they were interested in getting more. And it means that this, this is really the way to build a community and build reputation and build um, a relationship with people. Yep. Yeah, it feels so weird at first, just like learning any new skill does, you know, Learning to dance or something would it just feels so weird, right? Especially if you, uh, still, still feels weird. But okay. Yeah, like just imagine taking ballroom dance lessons. If that terrifies you, you're gonna feel just as weird building an email list because you're doing things that you're just like, what? But you've never been on that end of things. But on the receiving end, it feels totally different. And it's if you do it right, it's a great way to build real world connections with people, just like you're talking about. That email where you transition people from the email course they signed up for to the list you're now adding them to, mm-hmm. that gets like a 1% unsubscribe rate for me. I mean, super low. I, I was shocked. I was shocked. Now, again, maybe it'll happen when I start sending out things on a regular basis that they'll unsubscribe. But given that I just added, thanks to that, in the last week, about 700 people to my list from the people who have been on my email courses, and the fact that, what, 
10 unsubscribed. Right, that's what you're saying. It's extremely low. And the positives way outweigh the negatives. Mm-hmm. And, and, and people are like a very, I mean, I've said this before, I think on the podcast and to many people, I've been writing for Linux Journal just about every month for 20 years. Virtually every message I send to my mailing list has more responses than, than I've had to all of my columns over all of those years. The sense of interaction that people have with the email is truly astonishing. But it's, it's positive. Like, I, I mean, I get such a great feeling. I love meeting these people and interacting with them. And I really see it's a, a great opportunity for me to learn from them as much as for, for them to learn from me. Absolutely. Not just so, the time to respond to all that email. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I've been doing uh, similar things with just putting out there that people can get 15 minutes of my time on Skype. And that oh. kind of response has been awesome. The other thing I've been doing is I've been going out and following people who follow other accounts that have audiences similar to mine on Twitter. And then I have something set up to auto send them a DM and just say, you know, hey, you know, are you a fan of the shows? You know, how do you want to interact or whatever? And just those conversations, I probably reply to about 40 or 50 DMs every day on Twitter from people who are replying and going, hey, yeah, I love the shows. Or, well, I didn't know about them before, but I checked them out and there's a lot of great stuff there and this is what I'm interested in. Or just things like that and just having those conversations, having the face-to-face conversations over Skype as much as those are face-to-face conversations, have also been really, really helpful and have brought all kinds of opportunities just to get to know people. And it's extremely valuable because then I have this idea in my head of who I'm serving and what I can give them. That's incredible. Now I need to get them on my email list. (laughs) I am curious about those Skype conversations. I think a lot of people are sort of afraid to invite strangers into their life that way. Mm -hmm. And I think it's so awesome to actually do that. How do those go? What's the like no-show rate? I probably have one in every four or five that don't show up. Mm-hmm. It's just a Calendly link, and it allows two slots per day. So it's not like I'm overwhelmed with all the people who want to get a hold of me. And it's just nice because I can get in and I can talk to them and I can get to know them and, like I said, just make a connection. What are the conversations like? What what do people ask you? It really depends. A lot yeah. of times I wind up asking them <laughs> questions about who they are and where they're from. And I really want to kind of get personal details. At the same time, I also want to know which shows do you listen to, which episodes have you liked, and that kind of thing as well. And a lot of times uh, we kind of go back and forth. I usually spend at least half the time just asking them questions about themselves and, and getting responses I've had a few people get on and they talked to me for 15 minutes basically saying, this is what I've been thinking about lately or, you know, G isn't development great. I don't really get to ask many questions or get to know them all that well because they just spout. But right. most people, yeah, they're like, okay, well, what do you want to talk about? And I'm like, well, I want to talk about you. <laughs> and then I ask them my questions. It works out really well. And sometimes I'll wind up talking to people for a half hour. And sometimes it's like, okay, 15 minutes is up. I'm gone. Um, you know, I had one guy, he got on and he talked to me for 15 minutes straight. He didn't stop, he barely took a breath, and I couldn't understand anything he said. And so at the end, I was like, pleasure to talking to you, and, and you know, I signed off because I was just like, I'm not getting anything out of this. I'm not sure he's getting anything out of this, I, I, you know. Yeah. But yeah. at the same time, I have rapport now with all these people that I've been able to talk to, and I've had some really interesting conversations and opportunities come out of it. I've wound up guesting on some podcasts. I've 
connected with a few other people one way or the other, found some interesting guests for the shows. It's just, it's been a very positive thing for me. That is very cool. It's really great. Uh, speaking of which, I kind of want to jump on something else you were talking about earlier, Philip, and that is how do you find opportunities to be on podcasts? I know a fair few people that I could probably just say, hey, I'd like to come on your show, or hey, I'd like to talk to your audience about whatever, and they let me on. But how do you determine which podcasts to go on and how do you get them to let you on? Well, my answer is not going to be super satisfying, I don't think. I, so far, it's been uh, through personal networking. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I just I know some people online who happen to know a lot of other people who run podcasts and that is how I did it. So it was not very systematized. It's not like a thing where I can say I, I did these five steps and they produced amazing results. It was just, you know, and, and in the times when it's been kind of questionable whether I was good enough for that podcast, I would always try to point back to some other appearances and say, you know, here's some other podcast guests I've done. I mean, not to be crass here, but most podcasts, uh, show hosts are in a position, not a position of strength. I would say they need, they need guests. They, they want relevant, awesome guests, but, um, sometimes it seems like the standards are kind of low. So I don't know if anyone out there listening has read the book. Trust me, I'm lying by Ryan Holiday, but he presents the basic, you know, protocol I would recommend for anybody who kind of wants to work their way up any kind of media ecosystem it's wrapped in you know his method is kind of wrapped in a narrative that may or may not be all that interesting to you but the method is basically you know you work your way up the food chain so you start out at whatever is the most accessible thing and this would apply to guest posting and podcasting and you know lots of other media placement type things so I am starting to get a little more systematic about it, Chuck. I'm going to hire a VA to sort of map out the podcast ecosystem of shows where I would be interested in being a guest that are kind of like next-level shows. And then I'll just – what I'll be doing is uh, loading up some cold emails in an outreach tool like uh, QuickMail or Outbound.io, which just automates cold outreach somewhat, telling people and saying, hey, I'd – you know, love to be a guest on your show. Here's two appearances that are relevant. Here's three topics I could talk about. That's what I've learned from my friend Kai Davis is you just have to make saying yes so brain dead easy for people. And yep. it increases the rate at which they do say yes. Perhaps Kai's been on, I'm pretty sure Kai's been on the show yeah, before he's been on we talked about reach. And it's just, you know, do all the work for them. That's the meta tip. You know, do as much of the work for them except for the saying yes part. So give them topic ideas, give them dates you're available, just anything that's a question mark, try to eradicate it and make your emails have one call to action per email. And so that's what I do, and it works just fine. No magic there, though. Yeah, that was more or less what I was planning on doing, was yeah. basically compiling a list of podcasts and then reaching out. I do, I think, have the advantage of saying, you know, if they're technical podcasts at all, I can, you know, I can talk about my own shows and say, look, I know what I'm doing here, but, uh, you know, I think I have something to offer your audience and here's what it is. Yeah, I, I would say that's probably an important part of that initial outreach is get them thinking about how their audience might be interested. And I think that'll increase the rate at which you get a yes back. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and there are some that I think are going to be harder to crack than others, but you can also work the angle of getting to know people that they know and 
you know, see if he can get in. That's true. Yeah, I guess I do the kind of the frontal assault first. and <laughs> Yeah, I'm, I'm the same way. Yeah. Just tell me no, but yeah, that doesn't mean I'm giving up either. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, one of the things, I have not gotten into this research project yet, so I am assuming that iTunes rankings are probably going to be my best proxy for audience size. Uh-huh. Just their rank within iTunes. Is there something else I should be looking at? In terms of kind of trying to gauge the who are the heavy hitters, you know. Well, I mean, and you talk about this a little bit in your book, but the audience size is not as important, I think, as audience fit. Sure. But once you've got the audience fit nailed down, then iTunes ranking. So iTunes ranking is based off of like a running average of the last number of new subscribers and downloads that you've gotten. Mm-hmm. So it's it's a reasonable approximation of who has a larger audience, mm-hmm. but it's not perfect. You can always ask the podcaster, and sometimes they just publish those numbers. Right. But yeah, I don't know if I have a good answer to that other than, yeah, iTunes ranking probably is a good indication. It's not a perfect indication, though. And there's no way to know if the space just isn't that competitive, and so only the top two are the ones you want to get on, and the other ones aren't going to pay off. Yeah. As far as my marketing goes, I have sort of a really short list of marketing approaches that I prioritize. And I kind of have a policy of I'll go on anybody's podcast (laughs) and talk about (laughs) positioning because on the whole, it's been a great way to start to develop an audience. So uh, I may just find out the hard way. Mm -hmm. And at some point I'll be saying, oh, I won't go on a podcast unless they're really good. But for now, I mean, I'll go on anybody's podcast. (laughs) So how do you, the other question I have is how do you convert your podcast guest appearances into people on your mailing list or people buying your book? That I do have some well-developed thoughts about. I think it's really important that the alignment between the end of show call to action and the podcast guest appearance itself be a tremendous amount of alignment. So what I mean by that is whatever I'm talking about on the show, which to simplify things is usually positioning, although I promise I'll be a little more interesting and diverse in my questions as a panelist here. But, you know, I'm always talking about positioning as a guest. So I sent people to a positioning crash course right now. And what I need to be doing to kind of level up is having a landing page that's specific to that podcast that offers an opportunity to learn more. So the call to action needs to extend the value of whatever it is we were talking about. So if you got value from hearing me talk about positioning as a guest on this show, the call to action needs to be how to get more value and it needs to be just perfectly aligned. So go join my list, not a good call to action. Go view my beautiful website, not a good call to action. (laughs) So that's really, I think the key is to have some next step for someone to take if they found your, your appearance on the show to be interesting or informative or educational. So I like email crash courses. I like, you know, go here to this easy to remember URL. I like vanity domain names for that reason. So mm-hmm. anytime I set up a thing, I usually get a vanity domain name for it. So my email crash course that teaches you about positioning is positioningcrashcourse.com. Wow. And it's long. It's not easy to type in, but it's easy to remember positioningcrashcourse.com. And because podcasting is, I know I'll get a link in the show notes too, but also if someone's listening or on their phone or whatever, I want them to be able just to type that in and, and go to a landing page and get on my list. So that's basically what I've done that's worked pretty well. Hmm, I like it. Yeah. 
That's it's, I mean, it's work. It means you don't just show up because if you create like a, a landing page that's specific to a podcast, that takes work. That takes time. I mean, there's no reason you can't kind of have one that's a template that you just tweak 20% of it to make it specific to that podcast. The thing I don't love about that landing page is then you've got a, it's fine in the show notes, but then you've got to people say, so Philip, how can they, people find out more about you? You've got to say, well, go to philipmorganconsulting.com slash whatever. And that's kind of a drag compared to saying, go to positioningcrashcourse.com. Mm-hmm. That's the only thing I don't like about the per podcast landing page approach. Yeah. Anyway, those are I two have, good ways to do it. I think it was you, Philip, on your mail. So it might have been someone else who recently said, like, don't, if you're on a podcast, then try to sell your book. Right? That's just like too much of a jump. <laughs> a lot of friction. And because because basically they're going from, oh, this guy sounds interesting to pay me money. And so um, <laughs> And so having them go to an email course where they sort of get to know you better, and then that takes them to your email list, and over time it'll work. And I think that's true and a good strategy. At the same time, I was just looking yesterday, two days ago, at my statistics on uh, Gumroad where I sell my book. And we're not talking huge numbers of copies here, but by far the coupon code that was used most of all was one that I gave to a podcast that I was invited on to. So, I mean, I was surprised. I didn't realize how many sales I'd gotten through there. I mean, it's like 12. Right, we're not talking mm-hmm. millions of dollars here, but proportionally, actually, a surprising number of people did come in and, and get it. I did not, though, then correlate who did the email course, who did my mailing list, and then bought it. I just saw that they used this offer code. That gets so tricky to do when you when you have all these different data sources and channels by which somebody can buy something. You have to, I think, be smarter and more dedicated than I am when it comes to the <laughs> analytics side of things. I did say that, yeah. I, I did say that in a recent email to my list. I said, I, I saw, for me, it was kind of a mistake to try to pitch a book at the end of a podcast appearance. But I'm also not surprised to hear that that performs so well because, you know, podcasting has these qualities of intimacy and if someone trusts you after listening to you drone on for 30 minutes about some subject, then they're probably a pretty good candidate to, to buy a book. <laughs> you know, that's awesome to hear that that data point about that. Well, the other thing is, is that if you're talking throughout the show about whatever the book's about and then at the end you're saying, you know, I have all this information plus more in my book at, you know, myawesomebook.com, then it, it makes a whole lot more sense, you know, because it has that alignment that you were talking about earlier, Philip, as opposed yeah. to saying, well, where can we hear more about you? And, you know, you've been talking about Swiss cheese for an hour, and then it's like, <laughs> well, I've got this Python book that you can go check out, you know, just, but yeah, so then yeah. they're saying, oh, okay, so what I'm getting here, I want more of, and, you know, it doesn't cost me a lot of money to get it, to get a copy of the book, then that makes sense. Yeah, it really is about alignment between the call to action and, you know, the the marketing experience that that person had or the educational yeah. experience. Yeah, I also have to point out that, so I, I have a mastermind group that I meet with every Wednesday, and uh, it's organized by Aaron Walker. If you go to viewfromthetop.com, you can check him out and what he's about. But anyway, so he has four different mastermind groups that he runs, and the thing that's really cool about it was that several of the people in the other masterminds and in mine, we were all talking over the same week about how to be podcast guests. And so we're actually putting together a little co-op. <laughs> and so if nice. you know a podcaster and you think that somebody else's message will fit, then 
you refer them and you know, we can also get on and say, Hey, I have this message to share and I'm looking for these kinds of people. And then, you know, you can get the introduction. So it's been kind of interesting to see where that's going here over the last little while. That's awesome. Is that working well so far? Are people excited about that? We are just pulling it together. So we just had a whole bunch of people say, yeah, I'm interested. And so I think we'll start formalizing things here over the next week or so, but that's kind of the idea. You remember web rings back in the uh, yeah. in the nineties? <laughs> yeah. Wow, I never thought of that. It's a sort of that idea for podcasting a little yeah. bit. Nothing oh, there we go. Under the sun, there. At the end, at well, the end of my show, I tell you about another show. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> well, NPR has been doing that with all their podcasts, yeah. and I have to wonder how sincere their hosts are. Like, you know, really, is Terry Gross interested in you know whatever she's she's hawking? Oh, I don't think so. But you know, basically, her boss has said. You will like this podcast, and you will tell everyone how much you like it, or at least you'll lie about yeah. how much. You like it. And that's clearly just you know, building up their their brand and so forth. Yeah, but yeah. if you have that authority, then it's really easy to refer people to the same authority. I mean, it works really well for me when I'm promoting my other shows, because if they're remotely interested in Ruby or JavaScript or Angular or iOS development, and I tell them I have another show on that then it immediately has credibility because they're used to hearing me on here. Mm-hmm. And so you get that, hey, this is by the same people. Yeah. Well, uh, we're getting kind of toward the end of the hour. Do we want to do picks, or is there something else we should discuss first? Can't think of anything offhand. Do we want to talk about Jonathan? <laughs> we need to talk about him behind his back. Jonathan who? <laughs> no, nothing more here. All right, let's go ahead and do some picks. Uh, Ruben, do you want to start us with picks? Sure. So as many people, uh, listeners may, may know, may remember, I run this site called dailytechvideo.com with different uh, lectures from conferences and so forth. And there's one that's coming up in another day or two. It's sort of on my queue, but is so good and so funny. You guys, I think all of us at some point have picked in the past the uh, F you pay me um, oh, lecture, so good. Right? So I'm, I didn't check, but I'm convinced, convinced it's the same guy. He did a lecture on, oh, I'm trying to bring it up right now, the 13 mistakes that designers make when making presentations. And it is so, and he's basically, his, his point is basically, he runs a design firm. And he says, if you are a brilliant designer, you are useless to me unless you can also sell. And how do you sell? You sell by communicating. And how do you communicate? You have to communicate effectively. And first of all, he's just a really funny speaker. But second of all, like he's right too. <laughs> you know, so I'll bring this on. I'll bring this on a second. I'm, I'm of course now, for whatever reason, my server is running slowly because of the millions of people now hitting it who are listening to our podcast. Uh, <laughs> that, that's I'm sure the reason. Anyway, I'll bring it up in a moment. But I so 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 enjoyed watching this video, and um, I think you guys will enjoy it too. That sounds like Mike Montero. That's his name, Mike Montero. Yes, thank you. I'm glad someone else remembers these things without having to look at them. Yep, and he did do the F you pay me, which is so good. Anyway, so that's that's my pick for this week. All right, Philip, do you have some picks for us? I I have two. I started out with one, but Ruben reminded me that Mike Montero has a great book for designers. It is actually one of the better books I've read about how to deal with clients. And when I say deal with clients, I don't mean deal with all the problems that clients bring you, but actually how to engage with clients in a way where you end up with clients you really like working with. And it's not all like what clients should be doing and are not doing. It's like how to be the kind of business 
that ends up with great clients. Really good book. Sorry, I can't remember the title, but uh, Mike Montero is a uh, multifaceted, <laughs> multi-talented dude, and his books are great stuff too. The, the other pick... Google says uh, design is a job. Design is a job. Thank you. That's that is- the one. Okay. It's on definitely on the top 10 list of recommended, even if you're not a designer, by the way, which I'm not, and I learned a lot from it. The other pick this week is something called salestools.io. I find myself in the course of my self-employment having occasionally to gather lists of people and reach out to them for entirely legitimate reasons. I'm not a spammer, (laughs) but sometimes I want to interview a certain type of person or do research on a certain type of buyer and present that research to my clients. One of the tools that I use for doing that is called salestools.io. This is a funky little piece of Python code. It does have a GUI. You pay for it. It goes out. It scrapes your LinkedIn search results. And I know scraping is a really horrible word, <laughs> but <laughs> it builds a, an Excel spreadsheet or a CSV file of names, at which you can then match up with email addresses and reach out to for you know an outbound campaign, sending a survey to people, or as I do, trying to get people who will agree to do a short interview to tell you about their pains and, and their needs. Anyway, salestools.io, they've got a couple tools that all kind of help you pull data out of LinkedIn for purposes like you know outbound outreach type purposes. Been using them for a little while, and uh, the software at first glance is like kind of janky, but it actually does what it says on the tin and does so pretty reliably. So that's my pick for this week. All right, I've got a few picks. The first one is... I have to say, um, Salesforce failed me. I did a 30-day trial. I made it through seven. Uh, I gave up. <laughs> so I've been using HiRise. I've been using it to manage uh, podcast sponsorships and other opportunities uh, related to devchat.tv and other aspects of what I do. And I'm really liking it. So I'm going to pick HiRise. And I'm also going to pick Philip's book. I think I picked it before, but I really, really liked it. And so since you're here, I'm going to give you props and say that it's an awesome book. Thanks, man. All right. Well, uh, let's go ahead and stop the broadcast. Thanks anyone who watches this during or after the fact. And we'll be back around doing this again next month. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.